Hey everybody, this is the House of Shade, and today's episode is hosted by Red-Eyed Bear and features the Corpeg research team responsible for the development of Shade Protocol's algorithmic stablecoin, Silk. In today's episode, we meet the Corpeg research team, discuss Silk's utility and role in the protocol, take a deep dive into the development of the Silk currency basket, and find out what makes Silk unique from every other stablecoin in existence. Now let's join Red-Eyed Bear for our second episode of House of Shade. we're live all right thank you guys for uh taking the time to join me and uh come here and talk about silk and do a deep dive into it um today we're joined by admiral airman and florida man um again thank you guys for coming uh i know that there's a lot of hype about silk uh launching and um people are really interested to know how silk is uh silk is composed so i think this is going to be a really really good uh episode for for the community um not to disparage any of the other previous or future topics that we plan on covering but to me this this episode carries uh, a little bit of extra gravitas in my mind just because this is like the perfect episode to uh exemplify how the community can come together to better a project like you've got community-based education which house of shade is trying to take on and you've also got this these community-based um uh, work group that's building out this core product uh, for the protocol that that's going to be this flagship product. Um, so like how much more community oriented and focused could a protocol be, um, which, which I think is super cool. Um, so before we get started uh, with the content and the topic that we're talking about today, which is Silk um, and the Silk Currency Basket, I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a chance to talk about your educational and professional backgrounds and um, kind of how that helps you uh, work on the PEG research team. So maybe Florida Man, if you want to kick it off. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Red-Eyed Bear, thanks so much for having us on the podcast. It's truly an honor to be on one of the first episodes here. So really excited about what you all are doing and just can't wait to see Shade Protocol and Silk uh, just really bring forth all these great ideas in the coming months. So yeah, to sum, uh, sum up real quick, my background, um, I finished my master's degree here in the U.S. Uh, studying economics with a focus towards the commodity side. And it, my professional career currently over the past uh, eight or 10 years has had me studying a lot uh, global power shifts. Uh, through different economies, and I've stayed close to the capital markets more on a, a personal level, but it's always been a, a deep interest of mine since studying economics in, in college, and I just saw this opportunity to contribute, and it was so exciting to me to be able to kind of merge some of the passions and skill that I had into, the, into a crypto project with a fantastic group of developers. That's awesome. Uh, Admiral, you want to go? Yeah, uh, for me, I did um, so. I did a master's in public policy around uh, ten years ago or so. Um, that includes a lot of uh, economic economics, like for the purpose of like government policy and so on. Um, so I've been. I work. Uh, I have a consultancy that's uh, that's based out of Singapore. Uh, we do a lot of work in things like import 
and export policy advising um, for uh, for various various agencies, like whether it's like a, a regional government or a national government. Uh, we also work on things related to uh, tech uh, tech policy, fintech policy, this kind of thing. Um, so I'm kind of connected to the crypto space kind of indirectly. Um, my kind of focus, my expertise, if I have any, is is more uh, <laughs> related to like how go government policy works, monetary policy, okay. and and so on. Um, so that's uh, that's that's basically what I do, and uh, and and how I've been trying to contribute to this project. Uh, I'd also like to say it's like a huge honor. It's really exciting to to be on this uh, podcast with you guys, and it's been a really fun process so far. Uh, a lot of really great in, uh, contributions from many people on this research, both people who kind of sort of formed a bit of like the core uh, research team, as well as, you know, people that popped in here and there with with very good questions and very good input uh, intermittently as, and so on as well. So it's uh, it's great to be Glad here. Good to have you. Erdman? Yeah, so I'm finishing my master's in physics uh, as we speak. And uh, I'm focusing on data science and machine learning in that as well. So I'm more from the data science side in that sense. And uh, I work for a company where I created uh, commodity yield forecasts. So forecast what the yield would be for the economic season and how they use this to create several economic models for the price of these commodities. And that's where my interest in these kinds of topics started a little bit. And then uh, when I started the my crypto journey, I guess, earlier uh, last year, uh, yeah, I walked more along this path and then met uh, Florida Man and Admiral uh, to discuss the Silk Pack in the Discord. So that's where it all started. Well, I, I've just got to say, I think it's personally, it's so cool to me to get to talk to people like you guys because uh, talking to you guys is such a an incredible educational opportunity at least for me and i'm sure a lot of other community members that um, don't have any professional or formal education in economics or finance or any sort of data science um, personally my my formal education background is in physics and chemistry um, and i unfortunately didn't take any any formal classes on economics or finance or uh, business development. So all of my learning has had to come um, post-education, which I kind of like because I got to choose my own direction, the things that interest me most, but it definitely was a lot harder building that base. Um, so getting to talk to people like you guys who are very approachable, very nice, um, and very well-educated, um, it, it's a phenomenal opportunity. Um, so we're we're going to be going into a little bit of the background uh, of the properties of Silk and a little bit of its token architecture, and then going into um, going into a deep dive on the Silk currency basket and the logic behind its development, as well as some of some of the implications um, of its development in the greater DeFi space. So, I guess best place to start would be to give a little background on Silk. Um, I know not everyone that's going to end up being uh, I know everyone that is going to end up listening to this um, is not necessarily a new uh, person to Shade Protocol, but it doesn't hurt to give a little bit of a refresher um, to those who are already in the know. And this will also help give a, a decent base of knowledge for anyone who is just now getting exposed to Silk. Um, 
So Silk is the first ever privacy preserving smart contract interoperable stablecoin in blockchain history that's launching on Shade Protocol. And I, I love making this statement just because it, it still kind of gives me chills uh, saying that um, something is a world first, like got gotta love that there. Um, and Silk is built on secret network and made possible via the SNP20 private and fungible token standard. Um, and that SNP20 token standard is what allows Silk to maintain transactional privacy for all for all token holders. Um, Silk has four has the four key fundamental properties of money. Those four properties are it functions as a medium of exchange, a store of value, a unit of account, and a standard of deferred payment. Um, and through through the nature of its composition and its architecture, Silk is credibly neutral, uh, distributed, and has transactional privacy by default. Um, all of those things, th those last three things I said, credibly neutral, distributed, and transactional privacy by default, those are all three very, very important um, topics to hit. And the one that uh, I personally want to cover a little bit here is the transactional privacy by default. But you also have the ability to be transparent by choice, which is, I mean, it's so important. It's so important because when we're talking about bringing on institutional investor, institutional users, um, larger scale adoption, we need to make sure that there's a path for compliance and transparency. Um, and I think you guys would be able to provide a little bit of extra information on why this is such a critical aspect for Silk in regards to getting that large scale adoption. Sure, absolutely, Red-Eyed Bear. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head and it, like Carter and so many other of the developers of uh, Shade and Silk have mentioned many times, uh, it's it's very difficult for, uh, for the, the crypto ecosystem to grow as many dreamed it would grow into years ago um, without that privacy. And it, Silk just made so much sense to me when I first realized what, what they were developing because, you know, imagine if I want to go to a grocery store and go buy a, some groceries and use USDC or UST and, you know, all these companies are currently uh, building big data analytic platforms around all this open source data. And I don't want to go to a grocery store, buy a bottle of wine, have to show my ID and then all of a sudden all my prior banking history is, is doxed. And so I love that it also gives the opportunity for us to uh, yeah, be fully compliant, fully auditable, and, and that's what's gonna bring in the, the larger users uh, from the Wall Street side as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of gives the best of both worlds. Like it satisfies, um, the, the like requests of government so being able to make sure people are um, being taxed properly um, or paying their taxes properly but it also allows for the complete transactional privacy until the user chooses to to unlock or unveil that data um, which I it, it's it's so important and the more I talk to people about this um, the more I'm really realizing that People really do get it. It's just they have to take this leap of faith into the crypto space. Like I was actually just having a conversation today um, with a much older person. I think they were in their mid 70s and I was talking to them about Silk. And as soon as I gave them the example of 
you know, if you go to pay for something um, with a cryptocurrency that doesn't have that transactional privacy, they have access to all your data. And they, they kind of had a freak out moment, like what, what the heck? Um, and so making sure people understand that um, privacy is this very valuable aspect in blockchain space, um, but also being able to uh, provide that transparency when needed. Um, so Silk is algorithmically stabilized by Shade. Shade is the governance token um, for Shade protocol. Um, and we'll go a little bit in depth on to how this algorithmic stabilization occurs. Um, there's two main minting options. Um, and within these minting options, there's an important assumption uh, within the architecture that Silk is worth $1 of shade over an indefinite period of time, despite peg fluctuations. Um, two minting options are the DAO entry method and the conversion minting method. DAO entry is a one directional um, minting process, meaning it, it can't be converted back. This is where users are depositing or collateralizing um, Initially, we, we can use the example of secret secret for silk or for shade. Um, and so it's called DAO entry because the these uh, uncorrelated assets are being deposited into the DAO or the shade treasury, um, which then is able to use that and they're minting shade or silk uh, on the other side. And the, we'll kind of go back over why this is uh, actually a really cool and unique value proposition for shade protocol. but you're you're not causing uh, any inflation without collateral backing, which is really important. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, the second method is conversion minting. Um, this is where users are either burning shade to mint silk or vice versa, burning silk to mint shade. Um, and I think it's really important to note that this conversion minting process in conjunction with uh, like exchange for arbitrage opportunities is what helps maintain Silk's peg. And like this, this really is an important note right here. Um, so we'll focus a little bit on the conversion minting aspect right here and why it's um, critical portion of the architecture. So give two examples. There's um, expansion example and contraction example um, for the expansion example. Imagine that um, Silk is, We'll, we'll take an arbitrary peg right now, even though this isn't the real peg price of it. But let's say it, Silk is trading at a dollar, um, or that that's the peg price. But currently, Silk is trading at a dollar and two cents, or a dollar and three cents. In order to resolve this peg disparity, we're going to need to increase the total supply of Silk um, in order to reduce the price of Silk. So that kind of gets uh, facilitated through the, uh, the following process. So a holder of shade burns a dollar worth of shade, mints. Uh, one silk um, holder of silk will then have the opportunity to trade that silk on the market for a dollar and two cents. And um, by doing that, they're exchanging, um, they can exchange that with really any asset on a um, AMM. Um, and then that sell pressure uh, created by the conversion minting and expanding the total supply of silk pushes the price of silk back down to its intended target of one dollar. Um, and then contraction example, which is kind of on the flip side, um, imagine the price of silk is trading below its peg price, so like 98, 97 cents. Uh, in order to resolve this peg disparity, there needs to be a decrease in the total supply of silk so that the price of silk will come up. 
Um, and that's facilitated through the following process where one, a holder uh, of silk will be able to burn one silk and mint $1 worth of shade. Um, the holder of the shade will then have the opportunity to trade that amount of minted shade that the market values at 98 cents to any asset available on the AMM. Um, sell pressure associated with the, the arbitrage um, creates a, a net, sorry, let me, let me rephrase this. The sell pressure of the, of the arbitrage created by um, the conversion minting and the decrease in the total supply of silk is what pushes silk's price back up to that intended target of um, a dollar. Um, but I do want to point out here that that was an arbit uh, arbitrary example. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the actual uh, starting price of silk is going to be a dollar and five cents, right? Yes, that's my understanding. Okay, yeah. I just wanted to make sure and make that clear off the jump. We'll talk more about that once we get into the silk currency basket, but this was just an arbitrary example so people can understand the contraction and uh, expansion examples and how that uh, helps maintain the peg there. Um, so to go back to the, the Dow entry minting method, um, this provides a really unique value proposition for Shade Protocol um, in that it allows Shade and Silk to be backed by a set of uncorrelated assets within the treasury. Um, and that's really, really important for, for multiple reasons. One, those uncorrelated assets will be able to potentially provide revenue streams for staking and liquidity providing down the road, making both of those uh, sustainable processes. Um, but it also provides extra stability against any volatility in the market, having all these different uncorrelated assets under the control of the treasury. Um, if my memory serves me correctly, entry minting will most likely be limited to secret secret um but entry minting can be expanded to additional tokens beyond secret secret um like for instance due to due to the interoperability um with ibc um other tokens such as secret atom or secret osmo secret luna um, any of any of those types of options could leverage entry minting um, and this gives users the ability to directly transfer value into uh, the shade ecosystem, which uh, it is really cool because there are there are other um, processes that are similar to this, but yet they don't have as direct of a transfer of value into the ecosystem as this. Um, maybe, uh, Erdman, would you be able to provide any sort of uh, additional background here about why that's such a unique value proposition of uh, that direct transfer into the shade treasury or sorry, into the shade ecosystem. Yeah, I think uh, you already explained most of it, but um, I think what we always mention when you're thinking about silk is that it's super efficient. Um, over collateralized stable coins make it so you have to lock up more liquidity than you're actually getting back, uh, which is of course not the case for an algorithmic stable coin. So all the liquidity you put in is uh, the same amount of liquidity you get out. But what happens is that you do not only get the value out, but since the assets that are being entry minted into the DAO, so which are now uh, 
in, inside the DAO's treasury, uh, the yield on these assets uh, still remains. So if the DAO decides to, I don't know, stake the secrets or uh, liquidity provide the secret with their own shade, or maybe in the future you will be able to entry mint with other stable coins like USD, which could use the anchor protocol, or you would be able to entry mint Ethereum and stake that. Anyway, there are many different possibilities, of course, but uh, the fact pertains that if you entry mint certain assets that you re retain the yield. And since the silk pack is uh, stable in the end, you will you will create a situation where you have a stable asset because you you entry minted certain asset into the DAO, and then you pertain the yield of this original asset, which was probably very high yield bearing because there are crypto assets on the stable outcome you got you get, and this is so mind blowing, which we're already seeing in the Anchor Protocol, and I think Shade Protocol does only increase this effectiveness even further because all the new silk that will be created uh, or the new shades that will be created over the upcoming years will be fully backed by, or initially i guess fully backed by some sort of yield bearing asset which has which has to yeah. go into the DAO. so i'm looking forward to see a situation where you can have a stable asset uh, but also get i don't know 10 to 20 or even 30 percent yield based on the certain assets that are in the DAO or maybe don't even get these yields, but if the DAO saves them up and compounds them, you can create a situation where the DAO eventually has more liquidity inside than that there is silk value overall. And that way you would have both an algorithmic stablecoin, which is also over collateralized just because of the fact that the DAO has grown and grown over the entire yeah. um, period I, it's being used. One of the, um just to kind of touch on a topic that Carter and I uh, discussed on our last episode was that um, when, when they were looking at how they're going to make uh, staking rewards and um, incentivize liquidity providers, they wanted to make sure that they could do it in a sustainable way that didn't um, require basically ever or like ever going uh, inflation. And so the fact that through this entry minting process, you can, you can build up this uh, set of uncorrelated assets that can generate revenue um, for staking rewards. So you can properly incentivize people to lock up their shade um, within the shade uh, uh, staking contract or properly incentivize people to liquidity, liquidity provide um, and making that all sustainable so that there's no, there's no need for an inflation of shade. Um, that was... That was the, the biggest thing that I took uh, took out of this when looking at the entry minting process and why this is so important because it really does help the protocol reach this sustainable point where um, it can almost function into perpetuity without needing any of this inflation. Yeah, you can you can um, compare it, for example, to the actual price uh, behind the Bitcoin. Some people often show me this graph where they say over the long term, people, the, the price of a Bitcoin is not really the price at the moment, but it's the price what people over all the time have put in in fiat value or whatever to buy the Bitcoins that exist today. And I think this value is always like 30% lower or something than the actual price of a Bitcoin yeah. at one moment in time. And you create a situation where sh with, with shade where 
uh, at a certain initial moment, this price may be uh, very low. Um, but over the long term, the amount of value that is going into shade is higher than the actual price of shade, which is an, an interesting perspective and makes it uh, way more sustainable than other yield verticals. So now we've provided a little bit of background on the different properties of Silk Token and some of the architecture there. Um, I I really want to get into the interesting stuff. The whole reason we're here to talk today is about Silk Currency Basket. Um, So let's get into it. Uh, So Silk aims to uh, overall solve the volatility and sovereign currency risks that that single fiat currency stable coins have by pegging silk to a basket of global currencies um, and before we kind of get into um, silk currency basket I was hoping that maybe one of you or a Florida man can talk about some of the variables that that impact the volatility of these uh, individual currencies and um, some of the risks that are involved with using single fiat currency pegs? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, or uh, Admiral, do you want to take this one and I'll, I'll take the next one here? Yeah, sure. Uh, if I could, I think I think just on term in terms of um, like the list of things that impact volatility is is like very very long yeah. right it's, it's it's as long as like all human activity basically um but um we have basically you know we have the monetary side of the economy you also have the sort of like real or tangible side of the economy and then you have external externalities and external risks um in terms of like the real economy you know you have demands for goods or services that the country may be exporting um, the degree to which the currency might be dependent on commodity prices. Let's say it's a currency that's very dependent on the price of oil, for example, um, especially if they're a major exporter or an emerging emerging economy, that might be something that, uh, that drives a lot of um, volatility. Um, there's also, of course, like non-market events that can cause volatility. You know, maybe you have some kind of uh, geopolitical shifts, conflict, uh, some kind of black swan events, things like pan- pandemics, major natural disasters that either, you know, affect that one country and currency specifically, or are a kind of regional phenomenon uh, affecting uh, the, the the whole uh, the, the currency and all of its major trade par- trade partners and economic allies nearby. Um, in terms of monetary policy, like a, a sovereign government has has a huge toolkit um, at their disposal for um, for influencing. Uh, the the, the value, evaluation of a currency, right? And so even in a case, it's not necessarily a case of like weak or strong government monetary policy either. You know, sometimes a government may be incentivized to, uh, for example, like lower the value of their currency uh, if they're trying to trying to prop up certain export mm-hmm. industries, let's say. Um, you also have, you know, government intervention in the form of things like maybe there's tariffs, subsidies, uh, stimulus packages, whatever. Um, these things can can lead to things like protracted uh, inflationary periods, which uh, generally bring kind of periods of greater instability or instability in other ways as well that can sort of have a knock on or a feedback effect. Um, and, you know, I think like within a country, too, you have volatility that you maybe no, don't necessarily notice day to day, unless it's extreme. Uh, you might kind of experience the slow bleed of, of value um, vis-a-vis certain goods um, due to something like inflation, right? 
Um, so, so maybe like, you know, just the price of coffee keeps going up or, or changes and so on. Right. Um, so that's kind of, I think that like internal, uh, instability or, uh, volatility versus, versus goods also needs to be kept in mind. In addition to our discussion about like the volatility, uh, vis-a-vis -vis other currencies. Um, and yeah, I think very much like monetary policy, especially on, 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 on behalf of governments is very, very much about trade-offs and balancing interests. Um, you know, it's, it's often designed to benefit certain aspects of the economy, uh, and not necessarily like, per, uh, preserve purchasing power for the average consumer, for example. Um, but anyways, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways we can think about individual currencies within the global economy. Uh, I think has a good like an ocean analogy uh, that he that he's maybe can speak about <laughs> uh, later. Um, but you know, you can also I kind of think of it like a set of nodes, uh, each node with kind of localized risks and variables influencing their their volatility generally and, and kind of vis a vis vis a vis one each uh, each other. Uh, do you have more to say about uh, volatility or variables impacting it? I think you covered it uh, excellently. And um... Yeah, I'll get into the some of the analogies of how the capital markets and how money kind of flows from from one end to the next uh, in, in maybe a few minutes here. Yeah, uh, just before that, I am curious just because I've I've never been a forex trader. I have I'm not really uh, aware of what some of the traditional hedging practices are. I'm imagining if you've got a stable coin that's pegged to an end, like a single uh, fiat currency, you're going to want to uh, have have some sort of hedging uh, plan or process. Um, so could one of you maybe talk about what sort of things you would have to do if you were using a single fiat currency stable coin? Um, and then we can kind of transition that into, um, you know, how does... How does Silk help fix that problem of needing to constantly worry about hedging against um, the risks and volatility? Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of hedging options in Forex. Like, you have, you know, uh, foreign currency options, ETF hedges, uh, forward contracts, that kind of thing. Or you could be just sort of manually hedging by holding your own combination of currencies yeah. and, and commodities, right? Um, you know, certain currencies are also like reactive to one another in terms of monetary policy from the from from governments. If 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 they see themselves sort of rising against another another currency, they may react in a certain way. Um, but but at, in terms of consumer choice, right? You have like certain currencies can also act as regional hedges, like uh, maybe the Swiss franc in Europe, or like the Singapore dollar in Southeast Asia. These are are are, are commonly used in that case. Um, you know, maybe you hedge with a currency that's highly correlated with uh, with commodities, like the Australian dollar. You know, uh, you have a high correlation with the with with gold, for example. So, okay, we're going to put it there. Um, you know, to try and benefit from gold's role role as a, as a sort of traditional hedge. Um, but like largely speaking, I mean, the way to do it is to diversify your value across a set of currencies, right? To hedge, to balance, and and reduce volatility. Uh, so I think that like to move on to you know the what silk accomplishes, um, you know, it reduces volatility by by operating similarly to how an index of several currencies and a couple commodities, which we'll I guess get into a little bit later, but how that would work, right? It has all the benefits 
But the, the additional nice thing is that it has all the benefits of a currency in terms of like usability. You know, you can send and receive it very easily. People can interact on, interact with it based on their local reference point and so on. Um, and it's, it's diversified across many economies uh, and many regional networks. Um, when I was kind of like preparing and thinking before this podcast, I was like, I wonder how many international ports are included in our like silk basket. And it's like 75 of the top 100 ports by like volume inflow and outflow, right, are included in, in the currencies that we have uh, in silk. So that's to say that, you know, it's very diversified and very representative of, of you know, like sort of more like total uh, global economic activity. Um, and that's great because, you know, when we talk about volatility, these effects are not just something that necessarily affects a single economy, right? These can be regional effects, be it war, natural disaster, economic contagion or whatever. Um, so, yeah. And then, and then these, you know, the currencies within the basket, another thing I wanted to say is that, you know, these are, these are free floating currencies that are interacting with each other. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what currencies are chosen and why in a little bit. Um, but you know, each of these currencies has its own specific merits, uh, uh, points of scrutiny, criticism, and so on. You know, there are people who, uh, don't like the U S dollar <laughs> at all and don't necessarily want to see it in anything. Um, there are people who don't, you know, don't like the Chinese Yuan, um, because of some of their monetary policy and so on. Um, but we have to note that like these, these are all operating, all the States involved operate using a very similar monetary mm -hmm. policy toolkit kind of they all operate on the same spectrum and they operate reactive and relative to one another so that the, the the diversity of silk allows us to basically like compensate for those that that very mm -hmm. specific local risk that you have with any given one right by by diversifying it across across all um and another thing that's demonstrated in the back back testing is that you know, Silk does a really good job of like reducing like month on month and year on year uh, volatility compared to an individual currency. But I don't I don't want to get too ahead of myself on that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of <laughs> that's uh, these are these is this is where I see uh, a lot of the benefits in, in the Silk model. And uh, we can elaborate more about how we took the original vision, the original vision of, OK, let's base this around roughly the top kind of top 20 economies in the world and how we sort of narrowed it down to something that we feel is yeah, is, uh, is I mean, stable. just based off of uh, what you were talking about, the, these various hedging uh, practices and um, that that uh, Forex traders or individual uh, fiat currency holders might take in order to um, hedge towards uh, any downside risk. Um, it, it seems like Silk really simplifies this process, like for someone that has never had any experience in that, uh, it just makes so much more sense to um, put money into silk and let the the silk architecture and the basket um, do its thing and maintain my purchasing power. Um, we kind of and, belong and to, add, to add to that. Um, so many projects in the crypto ecosystem, they're all about increasing efficiency and reducing unnecessary uh, cost. And in this scenario where so the global economy is becoming more and more intermingled with time. And there's currently many companies 
that and beyond just companies that they they're required to have people that sit there and run a trading desk to fulfill orders to help them hedge their currency risk. And it seems that in the in the times that we are currently with the technologies available, um, that just doesn't make sense going forward to have to pay somebody to sit there and manage your currency risk. And I'm not trying to claim that Silk is going to solve all these problems, but I think it's a great step forward. Um, and we're, I like to believe that we're one, of the, we're one of the first ones to take this type of step forward in the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. And it's really exciting to see. Mm-hmm. If I can, if I can add to that, just like personal experience, um, like my firm, we're, we're, we're not nearly at the size where we need anyone kind of managing our assets for us in that way. But like, okay, I'm Canadian. I use a Canadian dollar. I have to manage all my, like my crypto using, uh, like usually us stable coins as like a reference point. We have like contractors that are in Australia that, you know, we're, we're calculating their local currency, other contractors in other countries. Um, I think that like moving away. So, so long as you can preserve um, the lack of volatility, um, moving away from from sovereign currencies is actually not that much of like a user experience leap as people might think, um, because there's just so much that you have to manage if you are an internationally integrated um, company or or whatever, or even like an individual. Yes. So, when you guys when you guys first uh, started sitting down and um, thinking about how you're going to take on this task of creating the silk currency basket, what what were some of the first steps that you had to take um, in order to start generating the ideas of like, you know, what currencies are we going to use? What testing methods are we going to use? Um, what what metrics are we most interested? Um, maybe you guys could provide a little bit of color on how this process started. Like what, what things were you most interested in to begin with? Sure. So thankfully, Carter and a lot of the earlier devs had really outlined some fantastic thoughts. And a lot of that was focused around GDP and using a GDP metric, a GDP weighting of the top, uh, I believe at the time it was 20 countries to um, provide that diversification. And so we had a good starting point and, but we wanted to figure out how to tweak and optimize that a little bit beyond just uh, flat GDP. And some of the first questions that we had to ask ourselves was what's solid and what, what do you compare the, the dollar or the you know, silk to? Because even as we're aware here in the U.S., uh, the dollar is even a moving target, although because it's what I measure everything with my life in, I don't really, I see everything else as the moving target, but actually the dollar is also moving. And that's a phenomenal way to, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's a phenomenal way to think about that. I've never, I've never thought about uh, purchasing power that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so it like adds almost a three-dimensional dynamic of, um, yeah. How do you measure something like this? So we kind of sat back and just, visualize how uh, capital flows throughout the world and we we landed on if if i live say in the united states and i want to measure the 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 depth of the ocean and i just go out and stake a measuring stick off the east coast somewhere
somewhere to measure the depth of the ocean, you know, I'm measuring the, the tide swings of my local area and I'm biased on what I'm seeing from my local area. But the capital market moves like the ocean and it moves like tides uh, move throughout throughout the world as, as, the, as the moon spins. And so we wanted to figure out how do we measure the entire ocean of capital all, all at once. And it, there were a couple um, ideas that have already been generated that have been used by capital market investors already. And one of them is like the, the DXY index, which is used to measure the strength of the dollar. And there's a couple other metrics also that, that we considered, but we landed on, we just found nothing that uh, was suitable that, that we saw. Um, a lot of them seem kind of archaic and outdated because these systems, uh, like for example, the DXY, they only update that every five years or so and um and it's also not measuring all the global currencies it's measuring just a, a select few uh, i believe it's five or six and the euro is very heavily weighted so what we decided on was let's build a benchmark of that represents the the average of all global currencies that are that are large and applicable to major economies and so we took um, any currency that is greater than 1% of the global GDP and have included that to create a fiat global benchmark is what we called it. And that's our measuring stick that we measure the dollar against and our backtest of the proposed silk peg and performance. I'll pause there if there's any questions and I think we get deeper into this maybe here in a little bit yeah no I mean in thinking about it that way and uh kind of tying it in with your analogy of uh the ocean and trying to measure activity in these really small portions when a lot of this activity is spread across these really wide swaths uh of of space um that that makes sense and especially when you're wanting to uh when you're when you're trying to create the the most stable or um the most uh, uh a currency that maintains its purchasing power better than any other you want to make sure you have a benchmark that can um reliably uh be compared to silk um just because if you just compare silk to any individual sovereign currency you're going to get um different performance data, you know, so it's a good idea to be able to compare it to not only individual currencies, but also this, this global fiat benchmark that you guys were talking about creating. Exactly. Um, yeah. So would you mind um, maybe just talking a little bit about um, some of the aspects of, uh, of that global fiat benchmark, like, I know you said any of the currencies that had, was it greater than 1% of the world's total GDP were included in that, in that benchmark? That, that's correct. And the reason why we chose any fiat currency that is greater than 1% of the global GDP is because we had to find a way to get um, quality price data as well. 
and with some of the very small currencies of very small countries, uh, they it's difficult to to get that accurate price data and to have the history of the price data to conduct uh, efficient back testing because we really needed uh, accurate data to go back to about 1995 to uh, to give us the back testing that we needed. Yes. Okay. And just just out of curiosity, this is personal curiosity here. What what was the thought process behind wanting to make sure that you guys had 25 years of data, you know, like why not potentially try and capture 40 years of data and see, or 50 or further back, um, see how it compared uh, relative to currencies uh, further back in time? Sure. Yeah. Great question. So the modern economy and the global economy has really changed so much since 1995. Uh, Part of the reason is it's just simple enough that there's not accurate price data to go all the way back to, um, you know, say 1980, 1985 or earlier for okay. some of these large economies that are now in the, in the mix of the global economy. Uh, because we've had uh, economies such as China and such as um, South Korea that they weren't nearly as large, say in the eighties as they are today. So, um, so it was, a lot of it was for testing purposes and also for more of a kind of fundamental um, or theoretical standpoint, I guess you could say is technology has changed so much over the, since, since the internet began that we think that it's fair to measure how the economies and how the currencies interact with each other since uh, we've been in this new technological age rather than uh, before things were so intertwined. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I, I think that the point about uh, technology really starting to change and influence the world in a, in a larger magnitude is, a, is an important point. I, I didn't think about that and why that might play an important role in why certain currencies outperform others. Um, so it's a quality point right there. Um, yeah, it was an enjoyable process thinking through this. And, you know, it was so fun uh, dealing with people like Admiral and Edderman who have so much experience in this realm as well to, uh, to kind of start from the ground up and say, Hey, we don't have to follow anybody else's rules or path that they've already created. We can create our own path. And it, you know, we're in an entirely new space. So why are we going to try to reinvent something that's already been that, that's that's been around for some time and isn't really working the way that you know maybe people anticipated that it would work? So we try to start with a clean slate. And you know, here's here's what we've come up with thus far, which we're quite happy with. Gotcha. Um, so. I'd like to I'd like to cover a little bit more of the details of Silk Currency Basket and then um, slowly work our way back to some of the advantages that we started seeing uh, Silk having over some of the competing products. Um, so when you were building and testing Silk Currency Basket, um, you obviously needed to be able to compare it to something and the, the main thing you were interested in comparing it to was this global fiat benchmark. Um, so can you, uh, once you started getting some, uh, a little bit better idea of what currencies you wanted to include in it, 
um, potentially what commodities you might want to include in it. Um, how did you actually go about testing the individual weightings of the different currencies and commodities in uh, in these baskets? And what were some of the insights um, that you were able to derive from some of this back testing? Sure. So we started out with the mandate, which is to provide a low volatility um, asset egg. And the second goal was to try to preserve purchasing power as much as we could while staying within a low volatility um, sphere. So as I mentioned, we originally started just looking at GDP and then we realized that we wanted to also incorporate slightly more um, economies that are more efficient and are, are have been better stewards of their currency over the years. So as we walked through it, and I think this started back in late November, uh, and we finally uh, reached a, a point that we were satisfied with in February. Uh, but where it led us to is a split basket approach, where the majority of the basket, part one of three, is based on the GDP weighting. And so what this looks like is we take every country that has a greater than 1% um, uh, allocation to the global GDP. And it, we, that's the, the weighting that it has for this portion of the basket. And then we add a multiplier to that, which is based on the GDP per capita. Okay. And the reason why we wanted to use GDP per capita is because it is a indication of the efficiency and most likely the stability and robustness of a economy. And there are economies who have vast GDP, such as, you know, perhaps um, China or, or Russia, or, I mean, there's many out there that haven't always been good stewards of their currency. So we wanted to try to reduce those a little bit while bolstering up and increasing the allocations towards um, economies that have been very efficient, which, for example, uh, Switzerland or even um, Australia, Canada, um, Norway. And so let me get back to my <laughs> back this up a little bit. Um, section one, basket one of three of the silk currency peg is the GDP weighted, which then has the multiplier applied um, of the of the GDP per capita. Now the second basket is the num uh, number two of three is based on the performers weighting. And how we quantified the performers was if the moving average of the 24 month simple moving average is greater than the 96 month simple moving average. So we did a two years and a eight year moving average. And these aren't just moving averages of the local currency divided by the dollar. This is the moving average of the local currency divided by the global fiat benchmark. And this is important to note because we're not optimizing to beat the dollar because there's no way to know for sure that the dollar will always be in the long run, you know, the standard. So we're we're optimizing to beat the the global average. And if a country 
currency has outperformed per our metrics of the two-year moving average being over the eight-year moving average, then it will be added to this basket of performers. And this basket of performers is representative of good stewards who have uh, been good stewards of their currency. And that is currently weighted at approximately 20% of the overall silk peg basket. And finally, the last basket, the third basket, is centered around commodities and particularly gold and Bitcoin as of now. Uh, we settled on 5% allocated towards gold and 2% allocated towards Bitcoin. And I would like to note that we did our very best not to opt to over, overfit or to um, cherry pick the, the data and assume that we would have you know, gotten in Bitcoin way earlier than we probably would have. So Bitcoin was added in actually at its 2017 peak because I wanted to see what would happen worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. And gold has, yeah, so there's a total of a 7% allocation towards the overall silk peg towards these hard assets that provide us the inflation hedge uh, uh, protection. So I'll pause there if there's any questions. I like it. Uh, I personally, I think it's a great idea to have that, um, like that third basket be the inflation hedge, just because you, you've got the individual uh, sovereign currency hedging, like um, having this composition of multiple uh, individual fiat currencies provides some some hedging in between the individual ones, but then you also have this inflation hedge that's kind of hedge against all of these currencies. Um, and I, I think it's a, a really good idea. I, I assumed you guys would have done this anyways, just because you want to make sure that silk performs, um, in the worst economic conditions possible and also in the best economics, uh, conditions possible. Um, cause it would be, it would be easy for us to pick the, the best charts to make silk look like it's performing really, really good. But I think, uh, the testimony, to how silk performs is what is silk doing whenever the rest of the world's economy is like taking a big crap. Um, and so do you, and you've gone through that back testing. What was the, uh, what was the worst drawdown that you've seen whenever you pair um, Bitcoin's largest drawdown and uh, gold's most recent drawdown? Sure. Yeah. So assuming that, all right, let's see here. So with the inflation hedge assets comes a little bit of added volatility, which we're trying to stay away from volatility, but we wanted to make sure that it was a, an acceptable level. And under a bad case scenario, if we assume gold had the greatest drawdown it's had in 20 years time, and if Bitcoin simultaneously had the greatest drawdown it's had since its existence, and assuming that both of those would happen at the same time, even though currently gold and Bitcoin are not, you know, they're not positively correlated really often. One is up when the other is down. The entire silk basket would have a 385 basis point. So a 3.85% drawdown. And we accepted this risk because 
what this provides us or what it has provided us in the back test is approximately a eight to nine percent um, value preservation over the back test period, which was 2010 to 2022 and 2016 to 2022. And I'll go into why we chose those timeframes. Um, so the, yes, the hard assets are weighted at that amount. That's what we visualize currently as the you know, kind of max risk there. And it is important to note also that if gold and Bitcoin were both to take significant drawdowns, um, the, the economic conditions that would bring that to, to be the case would very likely make the dollar, the euro, the yuan all be rather strong because most likely that would signal that there is a, um, a liquidity crisis of some type, which then a lot of funds would flood into these more reserve, uh, non-emerging market type currencies. Yeah. So I think this is actually uh, um, a really good place to tie in. Uh, one of the major advantages I think that um, that the silk currency basket has is its ability to be flexible and reactive to what's going on uh, in the world economy. Um, and it, it kind of makes me think about a question I had uh, initially in a statement I heard um, Carter say was, we want to stay away from speculation territory. Like, even if we think there are certain inflation hedges that function as really good stores of value, we don't want to, um, we don't want to make the portion of their silk currency basket that large because we don't, we don't want there to be that much of a, of a gain in purchasing power where you're kind of getting into speculation territory. Um, but you have, you still have that ability to change the weightings, whether it be for, these inflation hedges or whether it's changing uh, the composition of your good stewards basket or the, the GDP per capita basket. Um, that that flexibility is, is going to be really crucial for Silk being able to maintain that purchasing power and continue outperforming the global fiat benchmark. Yep, absolutely. I think you, I think you nailed it. And it, just to touch on here, the exact numbers, over the past 20 years, a weighting of this amount to gold and then the eventual addition of Bitcoin uh, preserved 9.28% uh, value to the, to the overall peg. So it helped the silk peg with the hard assets um, you know, beat the global fiat benchmark by, nine, by an additional 9.28%. Here, I can... Uh... I can pull up that uh, the screen of the of the uh, the composition and backtesting if you want, so it'll be a little bit easier sure. for people to visualize. And uh, Erderman or Admiral, do you all have any anything to throw in here while I'm going up before I go over the Excel spreadsheet? Yeah, I, I have a few comments just when we get to like the specific countries that are included, but uh, nothing until then. Okay. I uh, will, will add a quick comment uh, for anyone who's curious as to uh, the value of silk as, sorry, as in how silk is also an inflation hedge or how much it's an inflation hedge. 
uh, we've had a lot of discussions in the back discord with many members, uh, which some stated that Silk should preserve all its purchasing power. And that meant that it should outpace inflation. Uh, and some people went ahead and created a graph for this. And uh, this was actually really interesting. Some user managed to use some specific data feeds, which are readily available every month to create a silk pack, which goes up, I think like 8% every year. So it would outpace the S&P 500 with really mm. no risk at all, which is kind of crazy. Um, but we just want, just quickly want to highlight here that uh, the entire silk pack in the end is depend is based on currency data and currency price. It's not related to any inflation data, monetary supply, money supply M1, M2, or whatever, because uh, like Florida men already stated, and how Carter's vision and other shade members team's vision is as well is that silk should be. Uh, stable enough for you to use as a currency and it should not be hoarded to become a speculative asset. Uh, the goal is to have as low volatility as possible and make it usable in the global trade. So if you're interested in this, a small alpha might be that uh, there there can be a version two if you're willing to, uh, to work on this. Maybe we'll discuss this later, but uh, for now, the pack is focused on That's currencies perfect. only. Um and I think this this is a good point mm -hmm. for us to um, before we really get into the Excel spreadsheet. I'm just curious um, what you guys think uh, based on everything that um, you've seen and done working uh, on the peg research. What do you think the the, the biggest advantages that the silk currency basket has um, over some some of the competing products? Like obviously, silk is helping solve some of the volatility um and individual sovereign currency risks and i'm just curious just because we we all have different backgrounds i'm curious as to what you guys see as one of the bigger advantages just because personally because i had no uh background knowledge or experience in forex market and understanding hedging practices uh biggest one of the biggest advantages uh in my opinion is that silk acts as this perpetual hedge instrument due to the nature of the basket um and and also it's a, its ability to be deployed today while escaping the majority of uh, regulatory scrutiny, which I mean, we, we could go into that last part a whole bunch, um, just being able to be outside that the majority of regulatory scrutiny. But I'm interested to hear what you guys think are um, the major advantages that you've seen in, in working on the uh, PEG research. Yeah, I think for me, I was asking myself this question all along because it, it has to be something that I believe someone in a second or third world country would want to hold it as well as somebody in a first world country would want to hold it. And it shouldn't matter if they're on one side of the world or another. Uh, it also needs to be something that I personally would want to hold and that I would feel comfortable telling my parents to hold. And I think why I feel strongly about this is because I know that given the makeup of the peg, I will preserve purchasing power while having compared to other single fiat currencies while having the lowest possible volatility um, available in, in Forex markets. And so I don't have to, I can purchase it and leave it for 10, 20, 30, 50 years 
because I can trust that there's going to be a group of analysts in the DAO that are committed to always updating this peg and keeping it aligned with the, the best interests of the holders. And so, yeah, I think it's just that and I don't have it's a, I don't have to worry. I can just hold it and I don't have to worry. Is my purchasing power going to be there a year, five, ten years from now? And I think just to just to highlight uh, one of the final things you said there um, was the ability for the the composition and the weightings to be changed over time. Um, like that's a really big uh, thing, and it's it's done through governance. So it's done with the support of the community, um, which kind of brings the whole thing uh, full circle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think if I can add to that too, like. This is kind of less less uh, tangible or practical of a bet of like a, a strength, but I just think it's kind of interesting and unique. Uh, it's kind of like an experiment, and it's kind of a bold project, you know. Like everybody and their dog has like uh, a U.S. back U.S. dollar stablecoin now, right? But this is actually something that kind of stands out from the crowd a little bit. Um, and for me, that's like kind of what what at least drew me to the project initially, um, and then you know, kind of through the the hard work and impressive work of all. Of, of, of various people, um, I think that we kind of were able to prove that it has a reasonable and like a strong value proposition as well. Um, so I just think, I mean, personally, I just think it's yeah. kind of cool as well. What about you, Arabin? What's your, what, what do you yeah. think is the biggest advantage that the silk currency basket has over um, stable coins pegged to individual sovereign currencies? Yeah, so I will not go into the what I think the, the, the abilities of Shader, and just regarding the pack, I think the interesting part is that it's not backed by any single stablecoin. And that may seem really obvious, but the end result is that Silk would be spendable in the end. Uh, you see now clearly that as soon as US stablecoins are being spended, um, that the government doesn't like it because there are there is money being created, not out of thin air, but it is being created and it's not being created by the central bank, uh, which basically they lose power over their own economy, which is extremely scary for uh, big countries like uh, the United States or any given country actually. And uh, if Silk would gain a lot of adoption, then everybody could spend it and it doesn't impact any single currency which is held by uh, a certain economy and i think that's the the power of silk at this moment and for mostly for the future. yeah and it and i can't help but think about the risk that some of these uh us dollar peg stable coins are going to face especially as the us government uh continues looking more into creating their own central bank digital currency obviously there's going to be um conflict of interest there and uh, potential problems in the future. So mm -hmm. the fact that silk is an index currency kind of puts it outside of that regulatory risk where it it's not a direct fiat derivative. Um, so there's not as much, uh, I guess, conflict or problems uh, that individual governments have. Um, so. Mm -hmm. It has it has kind of an interesting interaction with government monetary policy actually because because we have that preference for good stewards built into it 
right? So like as as a country, uh, as the GDP per capita increases, as they sort of develop a more robust monetary policy, uh, they their currency should theoretically take like a larger share of silk over time. Um, so it has this kind of actually interesting interaction where it like rewards uh, uh, good good currency management on the beha- on beha- on the part of governments in terms of the representation. And this is the but this is unlike what the this sort of uh, influence that countries can have over their uh, the composition of the basket. Like I can't help but think about uh, the IMF um, and looking at. I'm blanking right now on the um, on the index currency that they've got that they've created, um, but essentially there's like for there is an incentive for countries to try and increase uh, their contributions or their weightings in some of these really widely adopted uh, index currencies. Um, and I think that it's really cool that one of the best ways that these countries can increase their weighting or uh, like participation in the composi- composition is by being good stewards of their currency, like doing what they're supposed to do. Would you mind if I just add a little bit more to that? Yeah. So on the GDP side of the basket, a country can increase their weighting by either increasing their GDP, which is quite obvious, or by increasing their efficiency and having a higher GDP per capita, which although China currently is weighted at 7.13%, mostly due to their low GDP per capita, as they continue to consistently grow both their GDP and GDP per capita, then their weight will be um, significantly increased. And on the other side, with the performance weighting, uh, we wanted to give smaller economies a chance to have a uh, slightly larger proportion or a a decent-sized share weighting in the basket that maybe their GDP alone wouldn't allow for. Um, And we chose the two-year and eight-year simple moving average based around... uh, business cycles, which are typically eight and a half years, a boom and bust business cycle in the economy, and also election cycles. And the two and eight year were chosen to catch large long-term moves in economic strength. Uh, Economies don't rise and fall in a matter of months. It takes years. And so this uh, flexibility with the performance basket has in the past during the back test uh, captured the long-term moves of economies as they improve their stewardship. That makes sense. Well, we can go ahead and uh, start getting into the the Excel uh, sheet. I know at least personally for me, it's always easier to understand topics if I can visualize, um, visualize them and silk currency basket is definitely one of those for me. Um, so being able to see how the, the total composition is kind of broken down and being able to visualize its performance um, through some of the different back testing that you guys have done, um, I think that will really help out everybody um, in trying to understand the, the full composition of the basket. So Sure, be happy to. So 
what you see on the top chart, and I'll zoom in a little bit, is the back test from 2010 to 2022. And the reason why we started in, apartment. the reason why we started in 2010 is really uh, dual, dual purpose. So one, we needed enough previous data to get to this point of 2010, because it takes uh, approximately 15 years of data to generate the proper silk fiat currency benchmark, excuse me, the, uh, the global fiat currency benchmark. It takes about 15 years of data to generate that. And secondly, and more importantly, uh, we wanted to measure how silk would perform against the dollar, which is the current standard by many, many people's view, um, during the dollar's strongest period. And what we demonstrated here in the 2010 to 2022 back test is although the dollar coming out of the great financial crisis did um, really gain strength and gain steam compared to the other currencies in approximately 2014 and 15, uh, the, silk, the silk peg was able to, with time, um, grow very close to to um, to match the dollar's performance during the best period that the dollar has ever had and not only did it um, perform very similarly to the dollar but it did it with much less volatility so on the left under the 2010 section uh, uh, back test section we have the standard deviation of uh, which measures the volatility and we can see that the dollar compared to the um, fiat benchmark basket is approximately 27 percent while the silk volatility is only 16.8 percent and it, it's important to note that on the dollar's path to its climb coming out of the great financial crisis uh, it actually had a pretty sizable drawdown of approximately uh, eight per seven to eight percent, and the silk peg did not have a drawdown um, ever below its initial starting point, and its largest drawdown was approximately three percent. Now, the, uh, I'll stop here if you have any questions on the longer term back test. I was just going to say, looking at that, um, looking at that first graph right there, the thing that sticks out to me is you can see um, when the dollar really starts to lose some of its value, and seeing that silk is able to resist that that downside uh, that downside risk is phenomenal. Even though it might not have as quick as quick of an upside reaction. Um, that the point that you made where it never dipped below its its inception price, um, I think is a really important uh, note to highlight. Sure. Yep. And I would, you know, it holding, when you compare the dollar to all of the other currencies in the world based on our proprietary GDP basket, it really demonstrates how much the dollar does fluctuate. And it, living in the U.S., it, it's surprising to me. It was surprising to me whenever I built this uh, how much 
uh, the dollar has fluctuated since 2010. And so we wanted to also measure a more fair representation of how silk performs during a period of time when the dollar had zero net change uh, throughout the, the course of the, the, the period of the test. So for this to take place, we measured against the, um, the dollar from 2015. So uh, really it was December 31st, 2015 up until December 31st, 2021. And it, the numbers here looked much, much better. Um, and I think this is a more fair test that demonstrates what I would hope and expect to see uh, silk mirror in the, in the coming years. And with this test, we had a very similar volatility um 12% versus the dollars almost 11% and to note this volatility came from the upside volatility so it had uh this slight 2% greater volatility than the dollar because it held its value much much better than the dollar um but overall very low volatility still and the metrics that i was most interested in uh comparing in, at the end of the day was the volatility adjusted return. So this is a um, this is taking the overall return and dividing it by the amount of volatility. Okay. And so we can see that with the 2016 test, there was a volatility adjusted return of 254%, um, while the dollar was actually negative because it, it lost. Uh, value on average during that time. Excuse me, not on average. It, it did lose value yeah. at, at the end of the day. Um, now, during the longer term test, the silk vol adjusted return was 396% compared to the dollars 219%. And with this, basically, the higher number, the better. It means you're preserving your value with as little volatility as possible. And that's what we were optimizing for. And you were the. I, so you can optimize for uh, volatility adjusted return. Are you able to, I'm assuming what you're trying to minimize is that downside volatility, right? Right. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. That yep. makes sense. Um, so in looking at this, in looking at this graph, it's, much easier to see the diversification present, um, specifically looking at the pie graph that shows the breakdown of the full composition. Um, it's, it's also a lot easier to internalize um, the idea that that silk reduces volatility after seeing some of these back tests and how it performed um, under different uh, economic conditions. Um, I think comparing it to the US dollar when it had basically its greatest rally um, in history and still seeing that same, almost same uh, sort of performance, but none of that downside risk. Like you said, you're trying to minimize um, that downside volatility. And then also seeing where the dollar really doesn't change in value or it actually slightly goes down in value. This is where you see Silk really outperform the individual fiat currency. Yep. And one thing I would like to note as well, this blue line 
is the silk fiat portion alone, because we wanted to see how much are the inflation hedge assets, the hard assets bringing to the table, and how much is derived simply from the uh, currency selection. And so that blue line is no inflation hedge assets. That would be what silk peg would be without the, the hard assets, gold and Bitcoin. And what I find interesting is, yes, it is very low volatility. And also during a period where the dollar was flat or as close to you know, flat as we can find over the past 20 years, um, the silk plain fiat still slightly beat the dollar while providing lower volatility. So this is just out of curiosity. Um, when you started doing these back test models, did you start out with just a fiat portion or did you already have in your mind you wanted to include uh, commodities or, or like these inflationary hedge um, items within the basket? Yeah. So we knew we wanted to include some percent to hard assets. However, I would say 80 to 90 percent of our work was all centered around how do we structure the fiat portion? Yeah. And because that's, you know, at minimum 90%, currently it's set at 93% of the basket and it's what's bringing the, the stability. So yeah, the majority of our work was around the fiat. And then towards the end, it was a decision of, okay, how much, how much, what's our risk reward trade-off that we're willing to accept with the intent of keeping low vol. Um, and then what percent do we set the golden Bitcoin to at that point? Gotcha. Yeah, just, just to add to that, if I can, like we had some early experimentations <clears throat> we were looking at it and like we always had the idea of having hard assets in the beginning, but like really didn't want to build a basket where like the, the fiat portion of, it, uh, portion of it is not actually performing well and we're just totally relying on hard assets to, to carry the value over time, right? So like like I said, the focus was on fixing or solving the, the, the silk fiat portion first and then seeing how we can... Uh, incorporate hard assets rather than using them as like a crutch yeah. basically um so i've just got I, i'm curious uh about what you guys think uh is the the biggest or easiest takeaway for a user like if a new user who's wanting to understand um the the, the silk currency basket and the peg and they get access to this uh excel workbook what things would you um like to highlight and say like it is is best for you to understand these portions like if you're going to just devote a small amount of time to understanding this what are the most important things to understand about um either the back testing the composition um or any any of the return data yeah i think it's it would be fun for people to hop in the the worksheet is, is going to be available under the peg research channel on, on the uh, Shade Discord channel and it, play around with the numbers up at the top left where you can change the GDP weighting, the performers weighting, the gold and Bitcoin weighting. And it, my, uh, my gut tells me that this will be up for vote by the Dow in the months or you know, maybe later in the year of moving forward of do we want to change these weightings uh, later on or for 2023. And so kind of, yeah, experiment with that. And then also just be aware that 
previous performance on a back test doesn't indicate future future results. There's always unknowns. Uh, there's all that it's the global economy is constantly evolving, and it, but thankfully through back testing we can um, test as many different scenarios as possible. And if somebody has mad, uh, you know. Python computer programming that's worked with a hedge fund in the past or done FX trading as a career or something like that, like by all means, we would love to have you uh, come aboard and contribute to the PEG research channel. And uh, yeah, that's what makes it fun. And we enjoy being challenged by other people's uh, well thought out um, responses and, and comments and iron sharpens iron. So it's always a good thing. Yeah. And I know, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, Erdeman, you you've done uh, a fair bit of back testing um, and playing around with the uh, with the workbook. Well, not with the workbook specifically. That's really uh, oh, okay. Al's um, play, and I guess uh, the other contributors started with an Excel sheet. But um, I've. I've started in a Python library. It's available on GitHub. It's still private, but people can contribute to it if uh, I see more people coming into the back research channel, which is for now basically emulating the workbook okay. which is created. So it has certain functions which make it so that you can calculate uh, where the basket is going dependent on certain currency data. And you can also import other data to see how it's performing and calculate some metrics as in is it deviating uh, is it going up comparison to the basket etc and then my idea is to make several different baskets so it will have functions which can take some sort of data and uh, not only create this benchmark which uh, florida man has created but also other benchmarks which people want to have and then for someone or for me to implement a method which will do out of sample testing so that would mean that you use an x amount of years of data to uh, calculate what your basket should be and you use some other years which you have not used to create the model to test the model and the the, the main limitation on this is that we only have so much data uh, really only like 25 years of reliable data for all the currencies which we're using so if we want to do some out of sample testing that means we have to use simpler baskets uh, or consider creating the basket for only 10 years or five years and then testing it on five more so we do have to it's not possible to uh, out of sample test the full 20 year model which Florida Man has created. Uh, that's sad, but that's how yeah. data availability works. And uh, we have to yeah. work around that, I guess. Um, I do feel the back test is done properly. Like every year, basically Florida Man started from the perspective where, okay, I am in this year, how would I change the basket now? Then I change it. And then, okay, now I'm in the second year, how do I change the basket? And then I change it. So it would be similar to how governance mm -hmm. is using it. Uh, so that's the the backtest fully makes sense and it's correct and it's very good, but we do need or want some out of sample testing. 
I've been very busy, but luckily we still have uh, a few months before Silk launches. So I hope to get this library off the ground and uh, get some more people working on it. Uh, maybe even people from the shading themselves. So we'll see. Yeah, where I think goes. this is a perfect, uh, perfect place to transition into um, talking about what work still needs to be done um, with the Silk Peg. Um, obviously, you're talking. Uh, you were talking about needing to do ample uh, back testing, but is there anything else you guys know that you're going to need to finalize or continue working through before you all give it the thumbs up, like it's ready to go, the peg's ready to go? So currently, we've uh, voted on and we feel good about the the peg as it is now for the launch. Mm -hmm. And with the excitement that it will be evolving and people, you know, other people smarter than us, hopefully, will come aboard and, you know, contribute and uh, generate new ideas. Um, and I think, as Erdman said, uh, the best way that we can test this moving forward is out of sample data. And we need to develop some framework on exactly what that looks like. And yeah, how that's going to be accomplished. So for new users that um, either people who are new to Shade Protocol and want to get involved in uh, helping the project out or people who are particularly interested in helping out with the Silk Peg. Um, for anyone that's interested in basically helping out, what, what are the first steps that they can take to getting involved with the Peg research team? Um, and then um, how can they start interacting? I think the first step would just be to drop some, some comments that you're interested in assisting um, in the PEG research channel. And then after that, we'll start holding some, get back to our weekly meetings um, and we can all discuss ideas and findings at that point. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I agree. Like this, this whole study from the beginning is like, uh, it's like a, a living document or something where there's like certain people who have kind of come and gone and, and made, you know, interesting contributions uh, at different stages. So like, I just encourage people to jump into the conversation at any point. Um, you know, like definitely do your best to, to try and catch up on the conversation that came before. I mean, hopefully, hopefully this podcast gives yeah. people like a resource so they have a good uh, starting point. Um, but yeah, uh, just, just kind of join in and, uh, and interact with us. Yeah. I, I will say, uh, coming from, a uh, the standpoint of a community member who at one point was not involved with the protocol at all. Um, like it can be intimidating to start interacting with some people who have, uh, really high level skills or high level education. Um, but I do want to highlight that there might be one, one outlier, but pretty much everyone that I've interacted with uh, within the shade protocol, whether it's people focusing on building out core primitives or it's uh, groups of community members working on things like the silk peg. Um, if you are willing to put in the work and are willing to put in the effort needed to understand this, that those, those teams are more than willing to help kind of bring you in amongst them. Um, and allow you to contribute like they, they actively welcome you to contribute um this is going to be a much bigger project than uh something that just uh florida man and admiral and airman can handle and obviously uh, i'm just saying that just because you guys are here i know there are 
uh, a few other key contributors to the PEG research team. Um, but I just say this to make sure that anyone who is interested in joining um, the PEG research team in um, just asking questions, uh, starting to generate conversations, or maybe even trying to um, help build out some of the things uh, within the PEG, uh, just start asking questions and get involved. Um, I would say the best place to do that is definitely on Shade Protocol's uh, Discord within the PEG research channel. Um, and I'm assuming that the this this workbook and uh, the Silk Peg proposal are both going to be posted in in the Discord channel, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So individuals can go look at this. You can see all the data that's available here, and like uh, like Florida Man was saying, you have the ability once you have these documents, you can start plugging and playing with different numbers. Um, start generating your own back testing, and um, you know if you find something interesting uh, that performs a little better, or or a scenario that you think it um, needs to be looked at a little bit more, this would be a for a great first place to start getting involved. Um, Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people that contributed. If I can just mention, like Mangifi, uh, or Aju, um, at different points we had like Mizan is in the conversation, Vendable Chris. Um, there's a, there's a lot of people that that joined in uh, at different points and made like significant contributions uh, to this uh, to this and and even things that like like I produced things that we just didn't end up using as well, right? Like it's like it's like there's you know those going down those research threads helps con uh, contribute to the overall product as we sort of uh uh decide you know say yes to something or, or or prove that it's not a good idea um so i really encourage everyone to <clears throat> to contribute and 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 so on well that that's awesome yeah please please keep challenging us we have some uh, great minds and uh people from various different cultures and um uh, countries with different policies trying to pick our brains on why we made certain choices and uh, that's just really good for the end results. We had some people who were endlessly complaining about why we didn't include a certain, uh, I guess, inflation hatch or currency or whatever. And that is the kind of discussion we want to grow further. So even if you don't want to contribute or just discuss or complain, then please come because uh, even that is a contribution in its own right and is helping the team to make better decisions. I think that's actually a really uh, good point to make just because um, even just starting a simple discussion can provide uh, insight into something that some of the core team members might not have thought about. Um, I know there are a few things um, that we've talked about in the past on some of the PEG research calls where I might not fully understand, you know, all of, all of the inner workings behind, but I am able to think critically and uh, ask questions. And sometimes those questions uh, bring out interesting solutions or interesting idea threads um, that could potentially help down the line. So I definitely encourage anyone that's interested in being involved to, to get involved. Um, and with that, we're, we're just crossed over an hour and a half. So uh, I think we'll end it here for this episode. Um, I want to thank you guys for joining and providing clarity on the inner workings and 
some of the developmental logic um, behind what I anticipate will be one of the most notable DeFi products of 2022. I mean, personally, I, I seriously think that Silk is going to be such an important aspect of DeFi in the future. Um, and, and that's nothing but good news for Shade Token and Shade Protocol and all individuals who are wanting to preserve their purchasing power in the best way possible. Um, I want to say I personally look forward to continuing to collaborate with the team. I know um, a lot of the other members of the House of Shade podcast team have been involved um, involved with some of the discussions going on in the PEG Research uh, Discord channel, and we all look forward to continuing to collaborate with the team and providing input um, to help try and continually improve the end product. Um, just want to note, uh, right here at the end that if you guys do want to stay up to date with everything concerning the silk peg research i highly recommend you join the shade protocol discord server um, and check out the peg research channel um, and kind of just uh, a little bit away from silk and just more focused on shade there's going to be a lot of updates uh, coming out uh, with shade protocol development over the next few weeks so make sure to follow them on twitter join their discord join their telegram um, make sure you're staying up to everything up to date on everything new. Uh, there's going to be a lot of really interesting information being dropped soon. Um, so with that, thank you guys for tuning in. Bye everybody.